Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. At the Museum of Design Atlanta, MODA, they believe that design goes far beyond decorative. Design can be a powerful way to address 21st century challenges. Today, We'll hear about online programming at MODA, engaging young students in environmental issues through games, as well as arranging virtual birthday parties. And adults can enjoy the exhibitions online, too. The popularity of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel Curb Your Enthusiasm, and of course, Seinfeld, are a few more recent examples of how much Jewish humor is a part of American culture. Later, we'll listen back to a conversation with Michael Krasny, the author of Let There Be Laughter, A Treasury of Jewish Humor, and what it all means. First, Jewish cooking with an acclaimed Atlanta chef. Chef Todd Ginsberg believes there is a powerful link between food and childhood memory. He has said it's the nostalgia that reminds us of something you had as a kid. You know, It not only pulls at our belly, it pulls at our heart. His Atlanta restaurant, the General Muir, serves classic deli favorites and food of the Jewish diaspora. With Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year about to begin, we thought it would be great to talk with Todd Ginsburg about traditional food for the holiday. He joins us now via Zoom. Chef Todd, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. This is an absolute honor to be on City Lights and Shana Tova. Lashana Tova to you and yours. What foods or recipes are most closely associated with the Jewish New Year? Well, brisket is certainly uh, one of those that I had growing up. 
And actually, just this past weekend, my parents celebrated their 50th anniversary. Oh, mazel tov. It, uh, yes, it was incredible. And mom made her brisket and I poked her for a little bit more of the recipe and gave her a couple pointers on how to slice the brisket against the grain. So that was uh, a lot of fun. And, you know, uh, we also had challah at that meal, which is obviously uh, an incredibly important part of the meal, the, the round crown challah which signifies the endless cycle of life. So that was something special. So it was a little bit of a pre-New Year celebration as well as the 50th anniversary. So we got to kind of take me back to my childhood and celebrate their anniversary. Oh, how lovely. I've read that. Much of your cooking is a tribute to your mother. What foods appeared for Rosh Hashanah when you were growing up? Well, obviously every Rosh Hashanah, my mom would make matzo ball soup. Uh, there was always a whole chicken kind of chopped up in that pot with uh, big old carrots and big pieces of celery and uh, maybe a package or two of some soup mixes thrown in there as well for good measure. The brisket was a big one. We would always have apples and honey uh, on the table uh, with the challah. Would you talk about the symbolism for the apples and honey? What I remember just the sweet new year and just prosperous new year and may it be sweet upon you. Yes. Beautiful, simple tradition. Did your mom make a kugel? Mom made uh, a kugel, but it was always savory. I've, I've had the sweet and the savory. So I grew up with a more of a, a savory kugel from my mom, but it did have sour cream and raisins in it. So it was borderline sweet, but it was more savory because it was served with the brisket as well. So yeah, Kugel was always there. Uh, her simis, her carrot simis with sweet potatoes on Rosh Hashanah was uh, something sweet to think about. And I, we still make it at the General Muir on Rosh Hashanah. One of the traditional foods, as you mentioned, is honey. It's essential as a symbol of sweetness for the new year and people dip apples and honey, dip the challah in honey. Is honey a part of the desserts that you would recommend for Rosh Hashanah? Absolutely. We actually do an apple honey cake. It's kind of like almost a little pudding-like. It's really dense and sweet and just beautiful. I mean, it definitely reminds you of uh, the sweetness of the new year when you eat that. It's just, it's, it's decadent. Uh, not like chocolate is decadent, but like honey is decadent, where you just want to take the honey off the spoon into your mouth and just, you know, just take the rest of it off and before you put it in the sink. Todd, I must tell you that I had a healthy breakfast this morning, but I am so hungry and yearning for everything you're describing. I may just have to come over and pick up some of these goodies before the holiday begins. How will you celebrate? My fiance and I, my son Liam, uh, will be at the table tonight celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Uh, obviously, apples and honey will make its appearance, as well as uh, Nijar's crown challah. And Rosh Hashanah means literally head of the year. So a lot of heads make it to the tables. Uh, typically, we do f uh, whole fish. Uh, this year, we'll do squab since we have some in the freezer. And, you know, fish and meat just tend to cook a whole lot better when they're prepared whole. So it's always wonderful to be able to do that and to cook with that. So that'll be on the table as well. And then we'll do a, a, a simis and some couscous. 
Oh, yeah. I read that the fish, and particularly the head, is featured on the New Year table because uh, the head symbolizes going forward in the New Year, going forward with something good, with something that hopefully will be better. And indeed, you, of course, you would have that on your traditional table. Now, at the end of the period called the Days of Awe, which begins with Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and culminates with the Day of Atonement, with Yom Kippur, where Jewish people fast. Breaking the fast is also a celebration. What do you recommend for breaking the fast? Well, uh, the general mirror, we do a lot of uh, catering this time of year to help break the fast. We do bagels, we do, you know, obviously schmears, uh, quite a, a few other things. I've been cooking a lot of Chinese food, Indian food, Thai food, just because we can't necessarily always get it this time, you know, with what we're going through. But this year, this year to break the fast, I want to do a vegetable egg foo young, which is kind of like a Chinese omelet. Mm, yeah. That fits beautifully. And I love the idea of unifying other cultures because food is such a great unifier. It has been for me over the years. And obviously, I, I truly believe one of the reasons why I became a cook and a chef was to travel to other places and see their cultures and their foods and their celebrations and their holidays. Well, I thank you so very much for sharing sweet memories of your childhood holidays. And I wish you and your family, Shana Tova, a happy and healthy new year. And to you as well, Lois, thank you so very much. Chef Todd Ginsberg of the General Muir, which is located in Emory Point. There will be more information about what the restaurant is offering for Rosh Hashanah and different meal ideas you can create. All that on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. From Jewish food to Jewish humor, later in the hour, we'll hear from Michael Krasny about his book, Let There Be Laughter. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
The Museum of Design Atlanta continues to add content to its already abundant lineup of exhibits and events, further proof of adapting well to the virtual platform. Here to tell us more about the expansion are Laura Flusch, the Executive Director of MODA, and Museum Educator Bridget Drosta. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Thank you. It's great to be here. You have just announced a series of digital content titled Young Designer Programming. How was this idea developed? Earlier this week, Moda introduced a series of private experiences for young designers between 8 and 18 years old. And that's something new that we've added to our repertoire this fall. We've been watching the way education and learning have been changing and the we've been learning ourselves from the issues that families face in keeping kids having fun playing with other kids such things as that and so we introduced a whole lot of fun private activities that families can engage in for birthday parties or if they're doing some private learning with learning pods these can also be brought to classrooms or even can be virtual play dates for young designers. Now, you mentioned the age range. 8 to 18 is a wide range. How do you keep the programming interesting for both young and older kids? There's a lot of programming. There are a lot of things, a lot of ways that we can design and there are topics that range to cover as many of those as possible. So we are very fortunate that we have a really eclectic, brilliant team of educators who have different age groups that they like to specialize on. They have different forms of designing themselves and bring all of that passion uh, and expertise to our classes. Depending on the way that we're presenting it, we might have an age range of eight to 12. If it's more difficult content, it might be 10 to 14, 13 to 16 or things like that. And then we also have a lot of great programming that is mindful that teens may be listening or may be participating. Um, that's really important. And we know that how active, you know, everyone is generationally, but digital natives and Gen Z are a really special, cool group. And we have more and more programming for middle school and high school. We have Earth Guardians, which um, I think Laura may want to speak more on, and a lot of other programming that I think is really inspiring for older students. Would you take us through the series of programs you're offering? Uh, we are offering a wide range of private experiences. And one of them that I think is most exciting uh, are Minecraft birthday parties. 
One of the things that we have found with our classes this summer, uh, we ran a number of camps, is how important community and well-being is for students right now. So while a lot of us are still having virtual parties or birthdays or you know other forms of celebration look different right now, as designers, we wanted to investigate what it would be like to create a space for students to party online. And Minecraft is such a fantastic uh, way to do that. We have private servers that are available for students at Moda, uh, depending on the situation. And we plan to have birthday parties with challenges, but also a lot of fun and use uh, the Zoom spaces or use virtual meets for an educator or someone who kind of knows the content to be present, but also for participants to have the freedom to party and design with their friends. Hmm. How does Moda use the video game to teach kids about art and history? Oh, that's such a big question. Minecraft is a sandbox game, and I think that every person that interacts within it gets to show themselves in possibly the deepest, truest way that they possibly can. There are so many ways for everyone to participate creatively. So Minecraft itself has inserted a lot of really interesting nods to um, taking care of the climate or to history and, uh, and many other things, but we can make a really great build that we can use to teach and interact with that have to do with history. We can use Minecraft for STEM teaching. So within a history lesson, we can also incorporate science, technology, engineering, art, um, math, and of course, design into the process. Um, we do game design, there's coding, and also civics. We've had a lot of civics and voting and collaborative community building uh, showing up, uh, especially this summer. So it's been really interesting and powerful. You mentioned Earth Guardians earlier. How does that class fit in with the overall message of Murda? Moda believes that design is a process that inspires change, that transforms lives, and that makes the world a better place. And so all of our exhibitions and programs look at design as one of the most powerful tools we have for addressing big 21st century challenges. Before the pandemic started, we kicked off a very exciting year and we didn't know quite how exciting it was going to be because of the pandemic. Um, but for us, 2020 was meant to be the year of climate and change. We partnered with the Candida Fund and uh, other forward-facing corporations and individuals to put together a year of exhibitions and programs that looked at design as an extremely effective way uh, across many design disciplines to address the challenges of climate change. The pandemic has thrown some loops in that. 
Uh, and so we've recalibrated and we are now calling this the Climate and Change Project. And it will last not only through 2020, but through 2021 as well. And Earth Guardians is an important part of that. Earth Guardians is an international organization. We have started a Moda Earth Guardians branch and it brings youth who are interested in advocating for ways to, or being, being climate activists, essentially. It brings young climate activists together to figure out how to take action in their communities, whether that's writing letters to their congresspeople, um, whether that is figuring out how to be part of protests virtual or in real life, um, whether that is putting on programming to teach people about climate change and now other social issues that are of interest to them. It gives them a forum in which to meet and to do that. So our Earth Guardians chapter meets every other week on Saturdays. Um, youth of really any age are invited to join and um, they are essentially creating their own agenda. They have their own Instagram account uh, and they are deciding what actions they want to take and what kind of activists they want to be. In addition to the children's educational programming, you are also offering other online content. Let's talk about your interview series. What can you tell us about Design Re-Climate Change? The Design Re-Climate Change interview series was one of the ways that we stayed active within our Climate and Change Initiative. Um, when we closed to the public in March. Uh, one of our colleagues at Moda Malaysia, Marshall, uh, took on the fascinating job of finding artists and designers whose work addresses climate change and interviewing them to find out about their work. So those interviews have been rolling out approximately one a month or so and are posted on the Moda website and the work that the interviewees are talking about really ranges from a, an activist named Jess X. Snow, and their work addresses climate change often through artistic mediums and film, to the work of a young woman who is named Louisa Ulrich Vertiber, who is developing a way to generate power that's based on the motion of a cuttlefish to a musician named Daniel Crawford, who discusses in this interview a work that he helped to compose called A Song of Our Warming Planet. What can you tell us about the two virtual exhibitions? We have two virtual exhibitions that are on view right now. One of them is the exhibition that's hanging in our galleries. It opened about nine days before we closed. It's called Learning from Nature, The Future of Design. And it is a look at biomimicry as a design strategy. So that is the study of nature as a way of finding solutions um, to challenges that humans and nature share. That exhibition, again, opened right before we closed. And so we were fortunate to be able to use a Matterport camera and make a very detailed 3D scan that allows you to walk through the exhibition virtually and, and have a look at what's on the walls. And when we do reopen, that exhibition will be available again. We recently reinstalled our last exhibition. So in the fall of 2019, 
we had an exhibition up called Design of Descent that presented the work of graphic artists and designers who are taking on big issues of social justice and human rights. Um, everything from rights for women to war to uh, resistance in general to racism to climate activism. And so uh, our colleague at Moda, Veronica Klusik, took upon herself to build a virtual version of Moda and to reinstall that artwork on the walls so that you can walk through it and look at it. And we're really looking forward to using this um, as a teaching tool for youth um, who, are, who are passionate about these issues, but also as a way uh, starting next month to kick off some Con virtual conversations in which we can, as groups, visit this gallery uh, and then hear from activist groups who are involved in some of these issues and learn more about the work they're doing and, and how we ourselves can get involved no matter which side of the issue we fall on. The switch to digital programming has brought Moda all sorts of international acclaim. How does it feel to be gaining global recognition? It's really exciting. Design is a very, I think, universal language. It it's, informs everything we do every single day and, and what our experiences are. And so seeing people from across the United States and from uh, across the world click in to have conversations about how we can use design as a tool um, to design a better world and to design better experiences for everyone in the world uh, is it's exactly what we want to be doing. Congratulations on this robust content you're offering. Laura Flusch, Bridget Drosta, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Laura Flusch, Executive Director of Atlanta's Museum of Design, Moda, and Museum Educator, Bridget Drosta. More information on the wealth of digital content at Murda will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Michael Krasny wrote a book called Let There Be Laughter, a treasury of great Jewish humor and what it all means. Reveling in the jokes also made me consider the line between being funny and being offensive, especially with promoting stereotypes. And what is it about Jewish experience that lends itself so well to humor? I discussed these things with Michael Krasny a few years back. Here, he talks about his inspiration for writing this book. Initially, I wanted to sort of memorialize these jokes, uh, and there, a lot of them are in the public domain and have been for years, but I was also interested in finding out what they mean and really going into 
not only the anthropology culturally of them, but the history and psychology and, you know, so many areas for exploration because jokes are really like narratives. And I happen to be a literature professor, so I teach narrative uh, fiction for the most part and uh, was really drawn to that and also drawn to some big questions. Why have there been so many Jewish people or people of Jewish heritage so preeminent and dominant in the field of comedy, particularly American comedy and American humor and stand-up? Indeed. And the book is not just a collection of jokes, but your analysis of the humor as well. Would you talk about your reading of Freud's jokes and their relation to the unconscious? I read it many years ago, and then I went back to it because uh, he makes the case that jokes do reveal our unconscious. I'm not quite as infatuated or taken with Freud as I was as a young scholar and a young man, but a lot of uh, the dissection that he does of jokes made sense to me, that jokes uh, reveal sometimes, well, unconscious aggression or unconscious anxieties or unconscious uh, sexual repression, all of the things we identify, I think, with traditional psychodynamics. And so I was able to kind of build on that and explore it. But also, I wanted a book that really brought laughter and brought a great deal of it. And not only through jokes and anecdotes, but through just the material that I was constantly being exposed to in research for this book, uh, the role of Jewish uh, men and women in uh, film and in television and in so many other things, literature, which is my field. So there's a lot that's packed in this book. It's a, <laughs> it's a big canvas. Historically, Jews were restricted to relatively few trades, and among those few, many of the nasty stereotypes resulted from Jews being allowed to engage in commerce. So there were peddlers, merchants, and for the more successful, there was banking. Here we have a different type of dominance in the particular field, as you just mentioned, one with a very positive association. After all this research and your years of fascination with Jewish humor, why is it that you think there are so many Jews in comedy? Dominance is, is not necessarily uh, a word that a lot of people are comfortable with, but when you look at the list of those who have contributed to American humor and stand-up and uh, just delivering lines for humorous uh, writing comedy movies and so forth, it's it's staggering. Um, and you know, I liken it in some ways to all the Jews who became doctors or all the Jews who wound up in the garment industry. They were just vectors that drew uh, people of a certain tribe, let's say, uh, to certain kinds of occupations. And that's true, for example, when you think about the Irish in pubs or the Italians in pizzerias or the Vietnamese in nail salons. I mean, you can get lost in stereotypes there, but, you know, there there is a, an argument to be made that certain trades and certain uh, uh, ways of making a living attract uh, various people um, and are spread within the tribe, so to speak. With humor, I think it came out of a lot of different things. Uh, first of all, it came out of an experience uh, for many, many years of adversity and having to find a way to deal with adversity, uh, not necessarily just suffering, which is part of it, but also just the difficulties and exigencies that one faces in life and that the Jewish people faced as victims and facing pogroms and genocide and discrimination and persecution and all of those things for so many years, uh, humor was, was really what I would reluctantly call a godsend, only reluctantly because, you know, I know there are a lot of people out there who feel that 
that language is too filled with uh, the force of a divine. But it, for people who believe in God, it was a godsend. Mm-hmm. And it, it became a way of not only dealing with adversity, but also... Um, I used I in the book uh, I used the character of the golem mm-hmm. uh, a figure out of Prague originally in in the Czech, what is now the Czech Republic it's a figure who dealt with adversity by sheer strength kind of a Frankenstein madmade figure but also was able to atta- attack and uh, and launch uh, attacks against enemies so it was an adversarial way of protecting the self and also of getting at one's enemies and that's a lot of Jewish humor really when you break it down you mentioned Saul Bellow and pointed out that humor rises as a response to oppression, which indeed helps explain why Jews, Irish, and African Americans have contributed so much to comedy. Your outlook is upbeat, Michael. It's very positive. And you say that Jewish humor highlights suffering and neurosis but also emerges with laughter and a celebration of life. It's so complex, and um, you go into great detail about how self-deprecating, even mordant, um, maybe self-loathing, some of the humor is. Why are Jewish mothers and grandmothers so ripe for material? (laughs) I think mainly because a lot of these jokes were probably made by men or invented and uh, men came up with them. But there's a two-sidedness to that. A lot of uh, the, the, the humor at the expense, really, of Jewish women, particularly mothers and grandmothers or Jewish-American princesses, as they were called for many years and still are, um, is seen as um, being misogynistic and maybe even anti-Semitic. And sometimes, certainly, the stereotyping does suggest things along those lines. But there's also a strange tribute in that humor. You know, I use the example of uh, the guy who's on his deathbed and um, uh, his dutiful daughter is sitting there and the curtain's really about to come down on him. He's about to really die. And suddenly he smells kugel, this famous uh, noodle dish that Jews associate with so many different holidays. And he, he can barely even speak and he says he smells kugel. And uh, the daughter says, yeah, mom is making a kugel, daddy. And he says, just to taste your mother's kugel once before I die. And she says, of course. And she leaps up and bounds into the kitchen. And she's gone for quite a while while he's hanging on by threads. And finally she comes back and folds her hands and says nothing. He's just mute. And he says, where's the kugel? And she says, mom says it's for after. Now, that's that's a joke that makes many people <laughs> blanch a little bit. It's and say, a, yeah. Ah, that's that's terrible. What are they saying about Jewish women? I mean, they're saying in some ways they can be tough and, and also very practical minded. It's like the joke about uh, uh, the Jewish di- guy who dies and the wife um, is told she has to pay by the word for the obituary. So she said, OK, Mort died Volvo for sale. I mean, these jokes in some ways you know, are, are kind of terrible at the same time that they're hilarious. But they're also saying these are women who are practical minded and they know that there has to be a shiva or a mourning period afterwards. So the kugel has to get, you know, there for the people who are going to come and pay their respects. Um, Have to pay by the word. We're on a limited budget. Okay, you know, I'll do the best I can. And it goes back to, I argue, in the book, the shtetl and the whole experience of Ashkenazi Jews, mainly in Eastern Europe, who are facing adversity and pogroms and all kinds of disasters all the time. And the men spent a lot of time in the yeshiva studying uh, 
assiduously studying Talmud and Torah and the like, while the women, unlike Tevye the dairyman and Fiddler on the Roof, had to be the, uh, the wage earners and had to put bread on the table. So there's a whole tradition of these practical-minded and tough-minded women that you see, you see, for example, in the character Susie in Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, uh, who completely derides and, and is tough as nails with her husband, but has a soft spot for her, her child and has a loving nature as well. Oh, a, that's a, harder to detect. Well, look at some of the episodes with Susie and her daughter. I mean, she, she, she's always kind of after her husband, who is up to juvenile mischief a lot of the time <laughs> with Larry, you know, but loves her daughter. It's pretty clear, demonstrably. Well, I, I was intrigued by my response reading um, the book throughout this weekend because I realized I was, um, I think, reacting in a very, uh, a way you would call tribal, like the jokes about the tough-minded Jewish mother that, you know, this is also a tribute because she's a great manager or managing money well. Um, but I thought, okay, but when people who aren't Jewish hear this, it just goes back to reinforcing, you know, stuff from the Middle Ages. And I'm quoting you now, Michael. If you ask the question at what stage a fetus becomes viable for Jews, you still hear the answer after med school. That was funny. But the novelist Amy Tan told you she heard the same joke about Chinese Americans. And in fact, we know there are these very edgy references to tiger moms but the Jewish mother and the Jewish American princess jokes in particular seem mean-spirited and I think perpetuate stereotypes that aren't exclusive to one ethnic group. I think you're right, and I think I, I go to some length to point this out. In fact, you mentioned Amy Tan. There's a, there's a joke about a guy who opens a new barber shop and he puts up his barber pole and a priest comes in and he gives a priest a haircut and the priest goes to pay him. And he says, no, you're a man of God. You're a cleric. I don't take money from you. And the next day he goes out to get his newspaper and there's a beautiful crucifix to show the gratitude on the part of the priest for the barber. And then a minister comes in and the same thing is replicated. He won't take money from the minister. He goes out and there's a Bible the next day where his newspaper is supposed to be. And then a rabbi goes in and uh, he says, no, I don't take money from you. You're a cleric. You're a clergyman, a man of God, and I won't take money. And he goes out the next morning and there are 12 rabbis there. Now, you tell a joke like that and it, on the one hand, perpetuates a stereotype that, you know, Jews are drawn to money and, you know, a deal and a bargain and are cheap and so forth. At the same time that Amy Tan happened to tell me that same joke about a German, a Frenchman, and a Chinese guy. So there were a dozen Chinese guys the next morning. Many of these jokes, you know, cross over borders and they uh, become universal and they don't necessarily have a specific ethnic identity to them. And the Jewish American princess joke is one, on the other hand, that is told just about, for the most part, and some of these Jewish American princesses now are grandmothers or great-grandmothers themselves, but told about Jewish women. And I know why Jewish women um, have on many occasions told me how they bother them. But on the one hand, I also try to point out that they also represent a whole different side that's never brought to light. There's a kind of pride in those jokes, as hyperbolic and extreme as they are. 
we've succeeded in America where we couldn't succeed in so many other places, and we've been able to spoil our daughters, and so you take it to the extreme. But you also hit on something I think that uh, I try to go into depth in the book about, and that is who's telling the joke, and is there malice behind it, and is it told with you know uh, negative uh, kinds of intentions uh, to stereotype or to buttress stereotypes? These are big questions, and they're questions that I think people are faced more now with than they realize, because you've got, for example, comics like Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock uh, and Monty Python, who I interviewed recently, who all say the same thing. They won't go on college campuses because they become too polit- the campuses, the students become too politically correct, and they can't apply their trade in the ways that they perhaps felt they could. So there's that balancing, and it's a delicate balance between what pushes people's buttons, what goes too far, what engenders stereotypes, and maybe even hurts some people, and what you can tell and tell with a sense of it's funny, and that's what maybe is of the most importance. I have a joke in my book, for example, and what I try to do is show the trajectory of how the envelope has been pushed to the point where a lot of things that were considered verboten and absolutely off-limits are now perfectly acceptable to tell about Jews. I mean, uh, I'll read you one from my book very quickly. Two Texans are sitting on a plane. They're going to Dallas. An old Jewish man sits between them. The first Texan says, my name is Roger. I own 250,000 acres. I have 1,000 head of cattle, and they call my place the Jolly Roger. The second Texan says, my name is John. I own 350,000 acres. I have 5,000 head of cattle, and they call my cattle, and they call my place Big John's. Now, notice the language here. They both look down at the little old Jewish man who says, my name is Lenny Leibowitz, and I own only 300 acres. Roger looks down at him and says, 300 acres? What do you raise? Nothing, says Lenny. Well, then what do you call it, asked John? Downtown Dallas. How- <laughs> Love it. Yeah, see, you laugh. It's a funny joke. But, you know, you t- some Jews would say, well, you know, it, it perpetuates these stereotypes and myths about Jews having so much property and money and all the rest of that sort of thing. But notice, again, what you said before about Sal Bello saying that a lot of this humor comes out of the feeling of oppression. These guys look down upon him. They're Texans and so forth. But he's been very successful, and there's a celebration of that. I like the point you made about it's also very important to consider who is telling the joke and if there is malice. Some some comics seem less harsh when it comes to that type of humor. When Mel Brooks's 2013-year-old man talks about the Jewish parents coming to visit, and they don't want to bother him, they don't want to come into the cave, we just want to stand outside and look at you, that's funny. But Woody Allen's joke about his grandfather's watch that that you include, um, that stings, I think. It's a disturbing joke, um, but again, it makes Jews laugh and probably makes non-Jews laugh, which would disturb many Jews. The joke is, uh, as you know, uh, and it's been analyzed even in something like the Three Penny Review, which is a literary journal one by Wendy Lesser out of Berkeley here. In, I live in the Bay Area, and they get into all the nuances of the joke. It's uh, it's a joke that broke ground. It simply says, uh, "I have this beautiful." He has this beautiful gold watch, and he says, "Yeah, I love this watch. I cherish it. My grandfather sold it to me on his deathbed." So you know, but what are you doing with that too? At the same time that you're maybe reinforcing stereotypes, you're putting them out there and saying. This is this is one of the things that made Don Rickles famous. You know, he could make fun of Jews, he could make fun of all these ethnic groups in ways that he probably wouldn't 
be able to do on a college campus today. But then he'd say, look, we live in America. We can ridicule. We can use stereotypes. We can all live together in this pluralistic world, and it's okay. We don't have to be as sensitive to them as we were, say, when we were in Eastern Europe and so forth. And you make that point um, more than once in the book with Joan Rivers pushing the envelope. She did it not only with respect to uh, her Jewish identity, but she did it with uh, with women in many respects, um, in in ways that you know now uh, are given tremendous credit by some of these brilliant young women comics like Chelsea Handler and Sarah Silverman and Amy Schumer. There's a there's a definite lineage there. They stand on Phyllis Diller's shoulders too, who mm-hmm. was not Jewish, but they certainly stand on Joan Rivers. And and Joan Rivers was very influenced by Lenny Bruce, and she wanted to be blue and she wanted to be obscene and uh, the way so many male comics were. And she became just that as time went on. Uh, also, uh, there were no sacred cows for her. She, in an interview I did with her, she only mentioned one item, which I didn't feel the necessity to include in the book, um, maybe out of my sense of political correctness or being a public figure. But it was a racial joke about Michelle Obama. And she said, no, that was that was going too far. Mm-hmm. But she didn't. She went as far as sexuality and all of that. She kept pushing it and pushing it, whereas she started off with a lot of that typically Jewish self-lacerating humor. Uh, they take nude pictures of me and give them to men on death row so, you know, they won't be aroused or... Um, <laughs> Uh, I wear open-toed shoes to show off my breasts, you know, all of these kinds of self-lacerating forms of humor. And then she started lashing out in different directions with fashion police and going after all sorts of uh, targets, you know, uh, whether it was uh, Bieber or um, uh, the Kardashians um, and having fun at their expense. Okay. It was easy to laugh out loud very often while reading this book. But I laughed the hardest in your chapter titled Schlemiel's and Schmucks. Now, for anyone not familiar with the term, would you define Schlemiel? Well, a Schlemiel is just the the sort of hapless uh, loser type of uh, character who, you know, walks into a restaurant, for example, and knocks over a bowl of soup that somebody's about to eat, as opposed to the Schlemazel, who is, um, it literally means bad luck. He's the one the soup spills on, you know, the schlamazel. Uh I brought schmucks into it. That's, you know, I don't know, it's a word <laughs> that some people feel should not be on live broadcast, like the word Jap, which you use. You know, there's all this political correctness about are those words appropriate? Should they be used? Do they offend people? Um, it's, it's a word which essentially means the male genitalia. I know how academic that must sound using that word on the air, but uh, it's a profane word. And it's evolved, though, to mean more of a loser. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a movie called Dinner with Schmucks, and they were more schlemiels, and they were schmuck in its original meaning was like a villain, really, more or uh, a person who is, shall we say, ruthless or cutthroat and so forth. I was drawn to the distinction between a Shlemiel and a Shlemazel when I was a boy, uh, watching one of my boyhood heroes, Sandy Koufax, say that he refused to pitch on Yom Kippur, or as we said in Cleveland, where I grew up, because it was like a fish holiday, Yom Kippur. But Sandy Koufax gave Joe Garagiola, who was a sportscaster, formerly a catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, the best definition and the most cogent definition was just what I gave you, that the guy who walks into the... uh, Restaurant knocks over the soup is the shlemiel. The one who falls on it is the shlemazel. And maybe the guy who um, is uh, 
cheating them both on some level out of whatever's due them is a schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> now, once again, the, the brilliance of Mel Brooks speaks volumes about the significance of this term. I think that was when I had to pick myself up from the floor because I did not remember back in 2007 when he started that initiative. Would you elaborate? Well, as I say and point out in the book, it went viral. In fact, he said we have to do something to preserve the word schmuck. Uh, it's being misused. It's being used much too promiscuously and widely to cover too many territories and so forth. And um, he went into this shtick, which was typical of Mel Brooks, of confessing that his father was a schmuck. I mean, it became, you know, the source of humor. Uh, and, you know, that was a brilliant, one of the brilliant comic minds of our era and, and I think probably of the whole American experience. Uh, you, you look at Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and you realize just how much has emanated from them, from on the one hand the kind of silly slapstick uh, humor of Mel Brooks and the shtick that he had to... I suppose what you could call maybe a more self-reflective, intellectual, and self-lacerating humor of Woody Allen. There's a lot embedded in just those two figures alone. You write more seriously about how Jewish jokes can mirror the loss of Jewish identity and, and invoke Nietzsche, no less. Would you tell the one about Sammy Davis Jr. and the bus? <laughs> I'm, gl I'm glad you asked about the Sammy Davis joke because it came at a time, and a lot of these jokes are time-based, when uh, uh, there was a kind of uh, semitophilia that was very strong. I mean, Marilyn Monroe had converted, and Elizabeth Taylor had converted, and Sammy Davis converted. They all converted to Judaism. I think uh, as things became more open about Jewish identity, uh, as opposed to, say, Jack Benny feeling it couldn't be open the way Seinfeld could about being Jewish or... Arthur Miller writing perhaps America's greatest play other than Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill, Death of a Salesman, which has no Jewish identity in it, but it's a very Jewish play, I believe. And it's also uh, written at a time where there was a feeling that a lot of these things that were identified as Jewish had to be kept somewhat in the closet or undercover. And, and, and yet go forward about a decade to Sammy Davis converting and Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe, and suddenly we're moving in a different trajectory on a different plane entirely. What I was struck by in that Sammy Davis joke, though, was he gets on a bus and it's Jim Crow, South, segregation, and the bus driver says, get to the back of the bus. He says, but I'm Jewish. And the bus driver says, get off the bus. So <laughs> you know, what does it reflect? It reflects, it seems to me, you know, that whole idea that... Uh, Maybe Jews can't be as accepted as they think they can be. Uh, and maybe being Jewish is actually more of a liability and more to be used against you, even than being black, given the history of Jews and the thousands of years of persecution. Ironically, the chapter on suffering contains a lot of laughs. Would you tell the joke that begins with the Russian on an arduous hike who says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty? Well, it's, again, one of these jokes that uh, uses different nationalities as well as a Jew mixed up in uh, different in the same company. And they're, they're supposedly all climbing together a, a fairly arduous mountain. Uh, and they get to the top. And this is a joke that has actually gone through all kinds of analysis because of the controversies involved. It gets right back to your question about uh, should it be told to Gentiles and their Gentiles uh, – what if they laugh at it? Are they laughing at Jews and all that sort of thing? I just think it's a it's a funny joke. Um, so the Russian gets to the top and he says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. I must have some vodka. 
And the German says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. I must have some beer. And the Frenchman says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. I must have wine. And the Jew says, I'm tired and I'm thirsty. I must have diabetes. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's reflective of Jewish fetching and complaining, which is stereotypical. But there's a, there's a deeper meaning to that joke uh, from my perspective. And that is so much of Jewish humor has to do and Jewish jokes have to do with just stating in one way or another, we are different. Uh, and that's what that joke is really about. We're, we're, we're different than other people. And sometimes it can be used chauvinistically, meaning chosen people, which is not the meaning at all, handed down from Sinai. <laughs> My father told me as a kid, chosen people simply means we were chosen to have the Torah and the Talmud, not that we're superior or not that uh, we should think of ourselves as superior. In fact, he pointed out to me, and the rabbis will agree with this, that we were second choice. We weren't even God's first choice. So there's that sense of being different, and you see it throughout so much Jewish humor. It's why I was kind of astonished when I read, it was great to be in the paper or record and be have my book reviewed in the New York Times. And the reviewer talked about how hilarious the material was and you know probably sent the sales up, but he just didn't get what I was trying to say about what makes so much Jewish humor distinctive. It's hmm. that we're different. Michael Krasny is a contributor and has been a radio host on KQED. He's an author and professor at San Francisco State. We were discussing his book, Let There Be Laughter, a treasury of great Jewish humor and what it all means. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. to talk with filmmaker and director Casimir Noskowski. His new movie, The Outside Story, stars Brian Tyree Henry, and it's part of the Atlanta Film Festival. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Hope you have a safe and good weekend. If you're celebrating Rosh Hashanah, here's wishing you a happy and healthy new year. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? 
Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.